This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 53. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, the one and only Brian Hood. Actually, I'm not the one and only Brian Hood. Side note, there's a Brian Hood in Seattle who gets all my emails because if you email brianhood at gmail.com, I don't own that email address, so I'm one of many Brian Hoods, but he gets all my emails and I don't ever see them. Chris, how are you doing today, buddy? He's my co-host, by the way. I'm good. There are also more than one Chris Graham. And when I was growing up, there was a guy who had the same middle initial as me in the same town, Christopher J. Graham. Well, Christopher J. Graham held up a gas station and helped murder the guy who owned the gas station. Oh, no. I think you've mentioned this way back on the podcast, yeah. I think. Or at least you know I've talked about this before. That's crazy. Yeah. So I'm not that Christopher J. Graham from Dublin, Ohio. He's probably still in jail. My other Brian Hood, there is a murderer Brian Hood that if you search on Google, that's like who I compete with for SEO. But the Brian Hood <laughs> who has the email address in Seattle, he's like a lighting design guy. and He's like good career. Seems like a solid dude. I think I've exchanged emails with him before. That's hilarious. We both have murders with the same name. That's probably a bad sign of some sort. I'm probably. not sure. Probably. So how are you doing, my friend? I'm good. I'm excited for our episode today. I also bought you a present. No, you shut up. Stop it. In celebration of your engagement, sir. <sighs> and Aww. it's got some podcast vibes. I'm going to let you read it to our audience. <laughs> so if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook right now, you know exactly what it says. <laughs> if you're listening and you can't see it, it's a little like, it's one of those like hand-knitted cloth things with a funny phrase on it. Needlepoint. Needlepoint. And it says, shut your whore mouth. <laughs> <laughs> shut it, your whore mouth. You did not get that from me. It looks like something your grandma would have made. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It says something your cousin Billy would say. Right. Or I would say or because you. I say that all the time. Yeah. You said it to me in the podcast and I was like- Multiple times. Yeah. There you go. So in celebration of my love for you and of your impending <laughs> nuptials. Oh, I appreciate it, I will man. be sending this to you soon. Yeah. So those of you who somehow missed it, I'm engaged now. I got engaged a couple weeks ago. I am looking to, I think our date's sometime in early springtime, sometime in March maybe or something. So I'm excited. So thanks for that. I look forward to actually getting that into my possession and then putting it Somewhere that it makes sense in my house. Maybe right by my bed. I don't know. Yeah. Just depends on where you need that Or right at the entrance of my home so everyone knows my attitude towards <laughs> them as they walk into my house. <laughs> All right. So let's get into the actual episode today. Today, we're having a little bit of a different episode than normal. And that's because people that listen to this podcast since the beginning, you all know what this is. People who kind of just joined in whenever, you probably don't know what the hell this is. Occasionally, you may have heard like a little siren go off. And if you're smart you kind of realize that usually anytime Chris mentions a specific piece of gear, that's because in this podcast, we've decided early on, we do not want this to be a podcast about gear. And so we created something called the gear slut alert. And that little siren goes off anytime a specific piece of gear is mentioned. And that's because the six figure home studio as a brand, we do not believe that gear is the answer to a successful business. That is not our platform. That's not our belief. That's not how we live in our own businesses. And so we're very, I don't want to say anti-gear, but we're anti-gear slut. All that being said, Today's episode is all about gear. Gear, 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 gear. Everybody gets gear. I'm going to give gear for you. I'm going to give gear to you. You get gear. I get gear. (laughs) Everyone gets gear. No, this is the anti-gear sluts guide to gear. Maybe that's what we call this episode. I like that title. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Off the cuff, my friend. 
or in my case, the recovering gear sluts guy. To the gear. recovering gear slut, because Chris at one point did have a gear slut phase. <sighs> Fortunately, I haven't caught that bug yet, but it is mm. very contagious from what I hear. It is. So I've isolated my gear slutdom into just only small parts of my life, mostly headphone related. I like headphones. So I've kind of already answered this, but Chris, do you want to kind of talk about why we have a gear slut alert in the first place? Yeah. So the big thing that I have found in my own heart, and I think that most of us listening, most professional audio engineers, that we struggle with something called the imposter syndrome. And it's a type of inferiority complex. It's this idea that, ah, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Do people like me? And we all struggle with this. And at least for me, there were huge parts of my life where I would just be like, ah, I don't know if I'm good enough. I'll just buy some gear and then I'll be good enough. And that's a really unhealthy, dangerous way to look at your career, that you're validated based on what pieces you have. That's so complex. And I think there's more to it than just the imposter syndrome. I think a lot of it comes down to the marketing message that we as audio engineers or audio professionals that we get bombarded with ads constantly from gear providers. And that's not to say that they're necessarily evil. I mean, I do a lot of advertising for the Six Figure Home Studio. You do a lot of advertising for Chris Graham Mastering. Yep. Advertising's not bad. The message behind it's not bad. The gear's not bad, honestly. But the result of all that advertising can be a bad thing because then we start thinking, oh, I need that. And that's the danger that we try to avoid. And that's why we have the gear slut alert in the first place. Yeah. Well, and there's a danger there that you see a piece of gear and you're struggling in your business and you say, oh, I know why I'm struggling with growing my business and providing for myself and my family. It's because I don't have that thing. And man, that's so dangerous because one, we've talked about this before, but let's just rehash. One, nobody will hire you because you have certain gear. Two, if anyone does hire you because you have certain types of gear, you don't want that client. That client is a gear slut. Their revision requests are going to come back eventually and they will be insane. Uh, if you could, uh, if I think if you could use a different transformer on the vocal preamp that you recorded my vocal and if you could, I was, I was thinking more of like, you know, a Jensen. <laughs> If you could use one of those instead, I think that would be more common. There's going to be a lot of gear slut alerts on this episode. So I'm just going to call it now. I think let's take a break on the gear slut alert for this episode. So just, okay. it's not there. Besides the one you just got, or should we just... Well, besides the one I just got, and in case I go off the rails, because I probably will when we get to the headphone section. How about this? No gear sluts this episode. Okay. This is a gear slut alert free episode for just this episode only. So yeah, I think this is a good episode to have. It's healthy. We all struggle with this, or at least I struggle with it so bad that I assume everyone else struggles with it. So before we get to the episode today, we're actually going to try a new segment of the show. I don't know we haven't done this before, but this is a cool little thing. We're not going to do this every episode, most likely, but we want to do an episode segment that we call the Six Figure Home Studio Salute. Chris, what is the Six Figure Home Studio Salute? The Six Figure Home Studio Salute is just us saying, hey, we see this person doing this thing and we think they're pretty great. They're doing a good job and they are using the things that we talk about, the skills, the tricks, the tips, the yada, yada, yada. Basically, what we're trying to say is from what we can see in these Six Figure Home Studio salutes, this is a person that lives the lessons that we teach. And we don't necessarily go and vet these people that they're like perfect in every way, but from what we can see on the internet of their presence, we like what they do. Yeah. So who is the first ever Six Figure Home Studio salute? The first ever six-figure home studio salute goes Brian out Hood, to... is it me? Is it me? 
Did me? Send hi, Mike. Oh, damn, I didn't get it. Send hi, Mike. I had not heard of this guy. You pointed me in his direction and I was like 100% approved. He's great. I like what he's doing. So I agree with this 100%. Chris, why did you select Sendai Mike as our first ever Six Figure Home Studio salute? So Sendai Mike, I was on Instagram the other day, Chris underscore Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, check me out. Hey. And he popped up. Mike does these videos where he talks about what he does for a living. His big thing is vocals. He mixes and records vocals. That's his name. Well, niche. read his Instagram profile because I think it just, he sums it up very well. And for, if you guys yes. want to check him out on Instagram, go to sendhidemike.mixing on Instagram. We'll have the link to his Instagram in our show notes. Yes. He says vocal recording and mixing specialist. So he's a vocal guy. He, that's his niche. And the thing that jumped out to me about Mike was one, he's positioned himself well with a great niche. And two, he's making videos on Instagram talking about mixing and giving tips for his potential clients. And the videos look incredible. He is, they look amazing. Yeah, he's doing a great job with lighting, a great job with his camera setup. So, six figure M Studio, salute to Sendai Mike. You are doing a great job and you're positioning yourself really, really well with your website and your Instagram. And that goes back to episode number 49, where we talked about answering the most important question, which is, why should someone hire you instead of everyone else? So I think if you go check out Mike's Instagram, I think you're going to see like he does a pretty good job of setting himself apart from the mixer next door. He does something to set himself apart. And so go see what he does. You'll see why we like him and see how you can kind of emulate some of the stuff he's doing. Don't go rip him off, but go see what he's doing and see what you can do to incorporate some of that into your own businesses. All right. So back to the gear guide, the anti-gear slits guide to gear. <laughs> Let's start with what would we say the 80-20 of gear is. So big picture here, big picture. Before we get into specifics, what is kind of the 80-20 principle for gear? Because we here at the Six Figure M Studio, that's honestly probably like the top of the list when it comes to anything related to business, learning and implementing the 80-20 principle. And this does apply to gear as well. So what's some stuff to keep in mind, just quick and dirty, 80-20 principle for gear, Chris? I think the 80-20 principle for gear, and I haven't really thought about this until just right now, <laughs> is that the gear that you buy should provide most of its value through actually doing something in your studio. Specify what you mean, sir. Specify. If you're like, I got this big, huge console and it sits there and I actually use Pro Tools. Uh, It doesn't really do anything. Sometimes I use it for preamps, but it's huge and it weighs 4,500 pounds and like I spent 40 grand on it. So stuff like that where it's just mostly about shock and awe with your customers If you're trying to shock and all them, that's fine, but don't lie to yourself and convince yourself that you're a real engineer because you have a real console. So the 80-20 principle, in my opinion, is you have gear that actually you use. I think if I were to go and give my definition of what I think the 80-20 guide on gear is, it would be this. You could probably get at least 80%, if not 90 to 95% of the results spending 20% of the money in almost any scenario. So just for example... Pick any like high-end piece of gear at all, and I can show you something that costs 20% of that and will get comparable results, 80, 90, 95 plus percent of the results audibly. And while this doesn't work in some scenarios because like there's just certain things you cannot compromise on, it works in probably 80% of the scenarios. So it's just the 80-20 principle works all around. So it's just something to keep in mind that if you're looking at gear right now and you're just oogling and ogling and ooing and on and him and hawing and whatever other sort of phrase I can fit in here. If that's what you're doing all the time on gear, stop it because there is a cheaper, more efficient way to think about your gear purchases. Yeah. So I w- let me rephrase my 80-20 principle. 
if your purchases are based around things you will sometimes use, stop. You should buy things that you will almost always use. Yes. And it's through having excellent gear that you always use that I think you're able to do the 80-20 here and you're able to not spend a fortune. It's when people are like, well, every once in a while, I really need a certain type of hypercardioid special microphone. Go rent it. Go rent it. Yeah. Yeah. So you shouldn't buy stuff that you will sometimes use. You should buy stuff you will always use. I 100% agree. And so I think next on our big picture, before we start talking about gear specifics, I think the next question to answer is how much money should you spend on gear? Chris is looking at me blank right now. There's no good answer for this. There is no good answer. There's no, it it depends. But I would say this, there's a couple things to talk about when it comes to how much money you should spend on gear. First and foremost, how much do you have? (laughs) What can you afford? So if you're doing this part-time and you have a day job, what can your day job afford to buy gear for your studio that you're starting up? Or two, if you're already established as a studio, how much can you afford from your studio's profits to spend on to gear? And this is going to look different for everyone. So some people, when we start talking about some of these gear purchases today, you may be miles away from ever being able to even talk about some of the gear we're going to be looking at today. But all in all, when we're talking about home studios, most of the stuff we talk about today is attainable for most people that listen to this podcast. And we're just trying to put everything through this lens. This is the lens this episode is through right now is what can the average home studio owner use and make the most of when it comes to gear? This is not a gear sluts guy. This is not someone that has a multi-million dollar studio. Most home studios are not that at all, but this is probably not also the ultimate beginner, super beginner guide to gear because that is not really most of our listeners either. Most people are somewhere in that little middle range and they're trying to get to the next level. And we're trying to really have this entire episode about that sort of person. Totally. Well, I'm not going to offer you guys a formula here, but I'm going to say that there probably is a formula to figure out how much money you should spend. And that formula looks probably something like, how much do you expect to make in the next year? Multiply said number by X, and that's how much you should have in gear. Now, is that X number a percentage or a multiple of what you spend? I would say a percentage. Some people- I was about to say, I was making sure it wasn't a multiple. (laughs) I would say it's like point, I don't know, 0.4. So let's just throw that number out there. That's completely off the top of my head. I'm not saying that's the magical algorithm that you should then go out and emulate, but you need to think about this. You need to ask yourself the question, what percentage of my yearly income from my studio should be devoted to gear? In my opinion, the business model of go get a loan, get way in debt, start a studio by buying a bunch of really nice gear because no one will hire you unless you have really nice gear is probably silly. There are a few people, a few people, I'm thinking less than five on earth that that's a great idea for. You're probably not one of them. And I also want to mention that Chris gave just a random number, like 40% of your, what did you say, profit or total income from your studio? What were you saying there? Who knows? I mean, (laughs) well, I mean, someone can make 10,000 and still not be profitable. Technically, it depends on how their business is formatted. But what I would say is this, the less money you make, the higher that percentage is going to be. The reason being, if you make under $10,000 a year, you almost always have a day job to support yourself. Like most people making $10,000 or less a year from their studios are not doing their studio full-time unless you're doing it from your parents' basement, which is how I got started in 2009. So if that's the case, ignore me on this. But if you're making 10,000 or less from your studio on the side and you have a day job to support you, that percentage number is probably going to be pretty high because you're building your studio, you're spending money back onto your business. And it may not all be on gear. There's other things to spend on, which we're going to talk about today, but this can be a pretty high percentage. But if you're at the six-figure home studio level and you're making six figures a year from your studio, you're not going to spend 40% of your 
And come on gear, that's ridiculous to me. Unless you are hyper aggressive about your gear purchases, but that's a little caveat there. But I do want to say this, both Chris and I talked about this before the episode. Me and Chris both spend at this point in our careers more money on our educations than we do on gear. Let that sit for a second because that's a significant amount of money on education. It's a lot. For me right now, this is one of the more expensive times, but I'm spending, I would say $1,500 a month on education right now. I've spent as much as... 3500 a month on education in the past. So I'm not at that point right now, but I'm still spending a pretty high amount. And the idea there is we talk about gear. And I think we need to say this. When you spend money on gear, there are other things you could have spent that money on. We've talked about this before. The term is opportunity cost. The opportunity cost of buying gear, the two big opportunity costs are advertising and education. And when you invest in advertising, you're investing in you as a brand when you invest in education, you are investing in you, period. There is no better investment you can make on earth than an investment in yourself. So as we let our guards down and we talk about gear, just keep that in mind. Don't walk away from this episode and buy anything. <laughs> For the most you part. You can be bankrupt, lose your house, lose your gear, lose everything. But anything you invest in yourself in education, you still possess after that. And you can still rebuild everything even if you hit a tough time. Maybe tough, but it still can be done. The $14 you haven't spent on a great self-help book, like the book I'm rereading right now, Rework, the 14 bucks that you didn't spend on that book is a ridiculously better investment than a new microphone or new monitors or sound treatment or a new plug-in. Buy a book and invest in yourself before you buy the gear. All right. So that's my little soapbox. I'll hop down for a minute here and let's talk about- So let's talk about gear that we like here at the Six Figure Home Studio. Some is going to be specific. Some of this is going to be kind of broad strokes here, but we have these separated into several different sections. We have things that help you with your positioning as a brand, as a business, things that help speed you up, things that do more than one job, things that let you work in weird places. Because we all, as home studio owners, a lot of us are working out of really weird shapes or weird spaces or sometimes traveling. And then things that make your work more comfortable. Those are the sections that we have. So let's just talk about the first one here. Start at the top. Things that help us with positioning, Chris. You think about positioning. Let's talk about three car brands and how they position themselves. Subaru, Volvo, and Honda. If you are really interested in dependability and gas mileage, Honda has positioned themselves as the number one company on that. If you are really interested in presenting this sort of hippie, I drive into the mountains and go camping a lot and I'm outdoorsy, Subaru is the brand for you. That's the brand I use. If you are an out-of-work college professor, then a Volvo is the car for you. (laughs) So like in our minds, a certain type of person drives a Volvo, a certain type of person drives a Subaru, a certain type of person drives a Honda. And a certain type of person drives a Bentley. Exactly. So when you're positioning yourself as a studio, you're trying to get certain types of people to want to hire you. You're controlling how you are presented to the outside world. What's the first thing on our list here that helps with positioning? Well, if you have clients over to your house or if you have pictures of your studio, vibe enhancers. These are really, 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 really important. And I think it's common. Most of our audience is like a male and a really macho (laughs) manly man. And we are notorious for being like, oh, vibe doesn't matter, man. Just, you know, this is about just get in the studio and you just make that performance happen. 
I just want to say, man, you can do a lot with just a little when it comes to enhancing your vibe because it's going to look better on Instagram. Go check out Sinhai Mike, what his videos look like. His setup's not anything crazy. It's nothing expensive, but it looks good and it looks great on video because his video quality is great. That's one. He invested heavily in a camera and it worked out for him. Go check out my friend Mark Eckert on Instagram. He has another space. It's just basically a room in his apartment. He's done a little bit of decorating and it looks great on Instagram and photos and videos. And it didn't take much effort or money to create that vibe, but it just took a little intentionality. That's it. And so putting a little money into when we talk about gear, your decorations are part of your gear. And so it's still worth talking about. Yeah. There are a lot of potential clients that will think about working with you who might hire you if you have a sweet vibe in your studio who wouldn't have hired you if you didn't have a sweet vibe in your studio. We hate to admit this, but in the artist services industry, which is what audio recording is, vibe matters. It really matters a lot. We are in some way selling rock and roll fantasy camp. (laughs) That's so true. And I think to go along with that is lighting. Lighting is a big part of vibe. Super huge. So yeah, go to Ikea. You don't need to spend a ton of money. Ikea is amazing for this. And just buy enough stuff to make at least that room in your house look legit. The next thing here that's, I think, really important, things that help with positioning are cameras. Back to Sendhai Mike. He's got a nice camera. His videos on Instagram look really good. Yeah, and it helps set him apart from the average guy down the road who has iPhone pictures and iPhone videos of all his stuff. It goes a long way, and it doesn't take that much to do it. Part of it's skill, part of it's gear, but at the end of the day, his stuff looks great. So go check his stuff out. Yeah. So the cameras and with that camera lighting, what you want to make sure is that when someone comes to your studio that they whip out their phone and they're like, oh, I'm going to post this on Instagram. You want them to take that picture and say, hey, everyone I know, check out this studio. That is a huge win for you. I'm doing lots of voices, on this, voices on this today. episode today. And just to clarify, if you want good photos of your studio, you don't necessarily have to go out and buy a nice camera. You can get a friend that has good photography skills, pay them a little bit of money or have them do it for free, whatever they'll work out with you. But I saw, I was talking to a guy recently inside one of my courses and he was showing me an ad he was running for his studio slash rehearsal space. Cool space, awful photos. And he was spending advertising dollars advertising these mediocre photos. And so I told him, you're going to have a huge ROI just paying someone a hundred bucks to take professional photos of your studio. Yeah. So that's huge. The other thing, we're going to put this in the things that help with positioning. It's in many cases, I think if you're recording bands for a living, the instruments that you have are considerably more appealing to potential clients than the gear that you have. No one's going to walk in and be like, oh my gosh, is that the, the Veramu from Manly that has the, the, (laughs) the, uh, what's a good example of this? Is that the mastering version of the Vermeer or is that the normal version of the Vermeer? Oh my gosh, I'm going to hire him. Like people don't think that way. They're not audio engineers. People don't talk that way either. <laughs> they do, Well, some of them do. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but if they walk in and are like, whoa, cool. A real Gibson Les Paul. Whoa, a nice Fender Strat. Whoa, a grand piano. And this is a niche specific thing. Obviously, if yeah, you do rap totally. or you know, hip hop, you're not going to have a Gibson in your studio. They're not going to necessarily care. They may care about a specific, I don't actually know anything about that niche. So you would know if you do that niche. Well, let me give you guys a really cool tip. So when I was producing for a living years and years and years ago, I did something that was pretty sweet. I had a huge room in my basement that I was producing out of. And I got on Craigslist because I wanted to fill that room up with gear and with instruments. I got on Craigslist and I started looking for organs and pianos. People in most cities in America and probably the rest of the world too have organs and pianos and big heavy instruments that they don't want anymore and they're trying to sell it. Or give it away. They take up a lot of space 
And so what I did was I found somebody that had a Hammond M3 organ. That's the exact model they had on the Green Onions song. If you heard it, you'd recognize it immediately. Um, really, 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 really nice organ, but it weighs like, I don't even know, 500 pounds, 700 pounds. And the lady was trying to sell it. And I reached out and said, hey, if you're unable to sell that organ and you just want to get rid of it, I can swing by immediately and pick it up with some friends. And a week later, come pick up the Hammond organ. You can have it for free. And then I put it in my studio and people would walk in and be like, whoa, cool, a Hammond organ. And you can do stuff like that all day. I, at one point, had five different organs in my studio just because it helped with positioning. That's cool. They were all free. They all didn't cost a thing. Everyone has some big, heavy thing. And we're the only people crazy enough to come pick it up for free. So yeah, that's a good tip. If you want to get some gear that helps with positioning, get some big, weird, heavy organs for your studio. All right, so let's get on to our next section here. And this is kind of a big one here, but things that do more than one job. So if you have a recording studio, a home studio, this is what most of our listeners have. It's really important that you make the most of everything you have. So if you can get gear that specifically does more than one thing, and you're going to hear what we talk about in a second, I think that goes a long way with helping us achieve, hopefully, profitability from our studio. So Chris, what's the first thing on our list here that does more than one job? Well, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but Brian and I both record the podcast and I use mine in mastering. Brian uses his in his business. We both have Apollo Twins. It's a little tiny silver box, if you have the old one like we do, that sits on a desk and it's got two preamps. It can do a bunch of plugins that actually run on internal processors. You can listen to yourself with these plugins on in real time or nearly real time. It's got a direct in, it's got multiple outputs. It does all these things and it sits on your desktop. So it's your preamp, it's your processor, it's your headphone amp, it's your mixer. It does so many things and it does them all really, really well. So it's a great candidate for a home studio. If I were starting over and I was like, I have to produce records and I have to spend as little money as possible and you have to make great records, I'm going to buy an Apollo twin. I'm not even going to think about it. It's just such a great piece of gear. Well, it depends on how many inputs you need. I mean, I have Apollo 16 in my control room over there, but I have the Apollo twin here for the podcast because I don't need more than two inputs for the podcast. Yeah, they're great. And, you know, honestly, if we were ever going to be sponsored by any sort of normal gear company, one of the only ones we'd even be open to is UAD. They make great stuff and they do more than one job. The twin is just so multifunctional. This is true. Next on our list of gear that does more than one job is something created by Slate. And this is, I actually have it on YouTube video. We'll put it in our show notes. When Slate first announced this way back in the day, their, their mic emulation kit. So it's a very neutral mic with a very neutral preamp. And they use software emulation to emulate specific microphones and preamps. And so this video, I'm literally just throwing money at my screen saying, take my money when they first announced <laughs> it. Because I thought this idea was so cool. Now, granted, I have not purchased it yet. Nor have I. It's because I don't track bands anymore, so it doesn't make sense for me to own one. But if I did, you can rest assured I would at least buy one to try it or have one shipped to me to try it out. I don't know what the reception is of this. From what I've heard, people like this, but I love the idea of it. So if they execute it well, this is a great addition to a home studio because it ideally, on paper at least, it opens you up to a lot of different preamps and microphones that you would have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to access. And you're getting it for one lower price and you're getting a lot more than one thing out of it. Well, yeah. And when I was recording music for a living, your mic selection is really important. In a perfect world with, you know, limitless money, you have an entire room full of microphones. And what you do is you get out all these microphones when you're working with, say, a new vocalist, and you set them all up in front of her or him. 
and you have them perform and you decide which mic complements their voice the best. It's extremely time consuming and you need a large mic closet to do this well. But when you've got something in a perfect world, if the slate is as good as it seems to be, you have one mic, you put it up in front of them and you're like, hmm, should I make it sound like this? No, this, no, this, no. Ooh, I like that. So you're saying it not only does more than one thing, it also saves you time, which is another section. So this gear purchase actually covers two yes. of our needs that we like to see in gear. Yeah, it definitely does more than one job and it could definitely save you some money. Okay, so similar to the Slate mic emulation kit that they have, there's also something that is one of my favorite pieces of gear of all time. It's like the one thing I tell people to splurge on if you can afford it in the studio. And that is something called the Kemper Profiler. And that's if you're doing rock and roll with guitars. Right. If you're working with amps and different cabs and you know all that fun stuff. And this is something that basically allows you to take a digital snapshot of one of your real amps and cabs and mic positions in your studio. So you're getting a digital capture almost indistinguishable of the original. You're getting a a digital fingerprint basically of one of your tones. And you can do this for many, 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 many tones. So what this allows you to do is then borrow or rent amps and cabs and just get a shit ton of awesome tones of all different distortion and clean and, you know, whatever levels and then return it or sell it. You can just collect tons and tons of guitar tones in this little box, tones that you create. You can also download thousands and thousands of tones online. You can buy Kemper packs and hell, I even have a Kemper pack for sale through STL tones. So this is a piece of gear that to me is well worth the cost. That's not to say there won't be a plug-in version that's more affordable in the future. We never know. I would imagine Kemper's probably working on that because it opens up the market to a much larger. I'd imagine UAD is probably working on something similar as well. Yeah. I'd imagine a lot of people are probably working on something similar to that, but still love it. If you have the money for it and you're on the fence about it and you do stuff that requires guitar recordings, absolutely recommend Kemper as a piece of gear that does more than one job. Yeah. And along those lines, guitars themselves, back to the things that help you position. I think a wall full of guitars, if you're doing that sort of music in a studio is a good thing. But in many cases, it's about spending less gear and about having gear that does more than one thing. Yeah. Good point. Good example of that is the PJ bass from Fender. It's a J bass and a P bass and you flip switches on it to get different tones out of it. Another example there's something called a Nashville Tele. A Nashville Tele is a Telecaster from Fender that also has a Strat pickup on it. If you're not a guitar person, I apologize for this. This is so boring for you. We'll be done in a couple seconds here. But a Nashville Tele can sound like a Telecaster or it can sound like a Stratocaster. I'm in a heavy music niche. So I did that with a PRS baritone guitar. I put a push-pull knob that split the pickup so I could have humbucker and single coil And then I could switch to a bunch of different configurations, which basically allowed me to do a lot of cool clean tones, a lot of good heavy distorted tones, and kind of have like a similar telly type vibe with a single coil all in one guitar. So that was one guitar that did more than one thing. Well, and it's one setup job. So you've got great strings that are in tune, and then you can be like, oh, how about this tone? Nope. How about this tone? How about this tone? How about There it is. Boom. That's perfect for this song, as opposed to like, ah, it's going to use my strap, but it's got a broken string. Crap. Yep. So that also has an Evertune in it, which opens up to a lot of more possibilities in the studio. And when you pair that with a Kemper, damn son, now you're cooking. So the last thing, this one's pretty easy here. Everybody should have a USB keyboard, like a little piano that plugs into your computer and lets you pull up virtual software. (laughs) I saw this on the list. I was like, why the hell do you have a keyboard? I'm like, (laughs) I thought you meant like a computer keyboard. It's a piano, Brian. Okay, got it, got it. You should have a USB piano thingy (laughs) in your studio that lets you plug in. A MIDI controller, basically, right? A MIDI controller, yeah. 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 
they're really cheap. Yeah. Um, I got one for a hundred bucks. It's a little tiny thing with. Dude, I got an 88, 88 weighted key MIDI controller off Craigslist for $200. It's great. Yeah. You plug that into Logic and use their stock sounds and you are, dude, that's incredible. So get, get a USB keyboard. It does so many cool things. The next category here is anything that speeds you up, anything that makes you faster. So we've hit on this a lot already, but anything that can help you move faster means higher dollars per hour if you're not charging hourly. If you want to make a six-figure income, if you want to have a decent amount of income, you have to find ways where you're not just, hey, I'm 20 bucks an hour, and then it's how many hours you can book. If you can book per project, you get rewarded for being efficient. You're going to be stuck at that like 20 to 30 to $40 an hour range, which is okay. If that's where you want to be, that's fine. But if you want to get to the 100 to 200 to $300 an hour range, the only way you can do that in the studio world in 2018 and beyond, in my opinion, is to do flat rate pricing and just become uber efficient and process oriented. And a lot of that comes to some of the gear we're going to talk about today. The first thing to talk about here in gear that speeds you up is any device that does macros. And so let me clarify, because that sounds nerdy as hell. There's a lot of devices that do this, but I recommend if you're on Windows, there's a specific keyboard, the Logitech G11, I think is what I used. And it has 18 or 16 programmable macro keys. So what this means is on the left side of your keyboard, basically where it would normally end, there's 16 or 18 additional keys there that you can set any number of keystrokes on one key press. So like a way that I would use it is in Pro Tools, in order to do drum editing, I could do like 10 different things in a row with one button press. And so when I wanted one specific thing to happen, I would pre-program into this software what I wanted to happen as far as Pro Tools key presses and the timing and sequence that I wanted them. And then it saved forever. So anytime I want that thing to happen, I press the key and it's done. And I can just keep pressing it and it'll do it again. And I can keep pressing it and it'll do it again. And this saves you so much time. Now there's other software. You've got Batch Commander by Slate. They do something similar to that. You've got other little like external USB things that can plug in and work with Mac. There's a piece of software called Better Touch Tool, all one word. I use it religiously. So all my F keys on my keyboard are set up as macros. And when I hit one of them, case in point, I can be in a mastering session. And if I hit, I use Help Scout for my email management. Not a great solution for everybody, but it's a good fit for me. If I hit Help Scout, boom, a browser opens up, takes me into my Help Scout account and opens their account where I can see emails to and from them. So you're saying if you're in a session, it'll automatically open up their email in Help Scout? That's how I have it set up. It's a lot of Apple script. But the idea there is a macro, a button that you hit once that does multiple things so that you can move faster. One other thing about that is that specific keyboard I mentioned, the Logitech G11, you can find them used. They're pretty expensive. There's other versions, but they're not as good. That's literally the only one I found that I love. The cool thing is like, if I'm working with my mouse in my right hand and my keyboard in my left hand, I don't want to have to move my hand off the left side of the keyboard when I'm working. Ooh, you actually hit on something huge there. So the entire idea of ergonomics and moving quickly in the studio is based on not having to move your hands. It's your right hand stays on your mouse. Your left hand is on your keyboard and your left hand is doing macros and your right hand's on your mouse and your right hand never comes off unless you're typing words. Yeah. So what that keyboard allows me to do is like certain things that are like on the delete key or the backspace key on my keyboard, I can put on those macro keys as single keystrokes and then I can just hit it with my pinky. And so I never have to take my hand off that left area of the keyboard. Honestly, it sounds stupid, but it saves so much time when you're doing these repeating tasks. Yeah. I left out a really important part of this too. When you're working in the studio, if you have to take your mouse and reach up 
into the upper left-hand part of your screen and select File or Edit. No, you don't want to do that. That's the slowest way to do it. You should be doing that with a macro or with a hotkey. You should have your left hand programmed by your brain and or some combination of the special keyboard Brian's talking about or better touch tool and be able to hit with your left hand what you want to happen in the software. Yep, yep. So any investment in that makes you faster. So if you switch to per project pricing, you get more efficient, you make more per hour. Yep. All right, let's move on to the next on our list of things that speed you up. Monitor switchers. Chris, why are monitor switchers on this list? I'm actually genuinely curious because this is one you added. Yeah. So in my opinion, the most important gear in your studio is a monitor switcher. You could drop me into a studio with any type of monitors. It'd be tough with mastering, but with a mix, I'm going to do a decent mix. If there's multiple sets of monitors and a monitor switcher, I can say, well, how does it sound on those speakers? Oh, it sounds okay. How does it sound on the next set of speakers? Push one button, and now the next set of speakers are where my studio output's being pushed to. Now, don't most interfaces these days have some sort of monitor switch button just for an alternate output? Maybe they do. I'm pretty out of monitor switcher world because I have the nicest monitor switcher money can buy. The Crane Song Avocet. I'm so bummed we turned gear for that. I was so bummed that we turned gear sled alerts off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my crane song is my baby. But basically, when you have a monitor switcher, the idea here is that it speeds you up because you can check your work on different sets of speakers and suddenly get perspective. The hardest thing about audio is maintaining perspective and making sure something will sound good outside of your studio. And a monitor switcher is a heck of a lot better than, I'm going to bounce this down and put it on my iPhone and then run out to my car. Oh, crap, it sounds terrible. I'm going to run back into my studio and rebounce this with some mix changes. That sort of like sprinting, you need to do that at some point, but you should eventually graduate to a monitor switcher where you're switching back and forth between multiple sets of speakers and not just monitors. You should have speakers. One of the best things I ever did, and I'll be real fast with this, was when I grew up, I was really lucky in that my dad had a pair of quote unquote, they're called Advent Larges. They were really, really, really nice speakers in the 70s. They cost about 350 bucks in like 1978. So there's a lot of money for speakers. But that's how I grew up listening to music was on those speakers. So I found a pair on the internet. I bought them. I reconed them. I put them in the studio because I know what Advent Larges sound like because I listened to them for 15 years. So I had those in the studio. I'd hit a button on my monitor switcher, flip to the speakers that I'm the most used to listening to on earth and could immediately say, oh yeah, that bass is a little wonky. Let me make some changes there. Great. Monitor switchers are awesome. All right. So next on our list of categories when it comes to gear, it's our list of gear that lets you work in weird places. And again, this is important because so many of us work in what we call less than ideal spaces. Like my mixing room is nothing more than like a 12 by 13 room. It's like a square. There's parallel everywhere. It's not ideal mixing space. So there's ways that you can get around that. And some of us travel as well. I do a lot of traveling. And if I got to mix or do something on the road or edit, at least I want to have gear that allows me to do that. So Chris, what's first on our gear that lets you work in weird places? My favorite type of gear, headphones. Dude, you are like the sluttiest headphone slut I know. Like for some reason, uh, you, you nerd out about headphones so much. Well, when I was a kid, stuff was rough sometimes. My teenage years were real rough. And headphones were magical because I could just be like, boop, headphones, CD Walkman. I'm in my own world and I'm truly alone. <laughs> and it was great. So for me as like a part introvert, headphones are just amazing 
because it's just you and some sound and nothing else. So I'm a massive fan of headphones. Any manufacturer that wants to send me free headphones, I'll definitely mention it on the podcast. So there's that. I love headphones. I just think they're the greatest thing. They're the thing I struggle not buying the most. Yeah. And I want to go ahead and just say like Chris's gear, nerd, slut, love for headphones aside. Most of us in home studios do not have the money or know-how to properly build out a room for acoustic excellence. So when it comes to getting proper listening environment, you're not going to get it in most home studios. The best thing you can do is to own a great pair of mixing headphones and learn them inside and out. And then you can really use them anywhere. You can use them on an airplane. You can use them in your bathroom while you're pooping. You can use them in your mixing room where it's a square room and it doesn't sound great. And there's a weird lull of 130 hertz and right when your mixing chair is, or there's a big boost at 400 hertz that makes everything sound boxy and shitty. If you have headphones, you don't necessarily have to worry about the acoustics of your room and it gives you the flexibility of travel and doing all these other things. So Chris, do you have any headphones off the top of your head that you specifically like? when it comes to affordable mixing headphones that are not like $10,000 or something stupid? Well, I was really shocked to see a good friend of ours, Lid Shaw, had an episode of the podcast where he had... He's from Recording Studio Rockstars, by the way. He's from Recording Studio Rockstars. He had Andrew Sheps on. Andrew Sheps is arguably as upper crust as they come as far as audio engineers go. And by the way, the link to that episode of the Recording Studio Rockstars will be in our show notes at the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 53. That's slash 53. Yeah. So in that episode, and I haven't listened to the whole thing yet, but I was blown away that Andrew came out of the closet that he often mixes on headphones on an airplane with a laptop. Interesting. And that was the sacred cow up until very recently. It was really offensive. You risked alienating a lot of audio engineers to confess to mixing on headphones. It was something people used to look really down their nose at you. And the world's a changing, man. I've seen some pretty notable guys in my niche of heavy music talk about albums that they've mixed with headphones and yeah. some damn good mixes out there with headphone mixes. Right. So I'm sure there are people that are like, you can't mix with or master with headphones. It's challenging. It took me a lot longer. It didn't take me longer, but it was more difficult for me to learn. It's an adjustment period, just like anything, just like mixing in a new room. It's an adjustment period, but it can't. I'm an adamant believer that even in the most unideal space, you can learn what works and what doesn't work, which is why I'm able to mix in that square ass terrible room. But I also think you can learn any headphones as well. So learn some headphones and get used to it and see what you can do with that. You might have better work out of headphones than in a less than ideal mixing space. Yeah. So headphones are big. One of the things that Andrew mentioned that he uses when he mixes and that I flipping love is the Dragonfly DAC. What the hell is that? It's a little USB. Dragonfly dick? (laughs) Dragonfly DAC. You you ho. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it looks like a little USB thumb drive from, you know, 10 years ago. And they call it a dragonfly dick. D- a DAC. little oh, DAC. DAC. Digital to analog converter. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Thanks, yes. man. It's a little headphone amp slash converter. You plug it into a USB port on your computer and it is so, so, so much better sounding than the headphone out on your computer. It's ridiculous. Oh, so you're just comparing this to headphone out on computer. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's a headphone amp with a converter in it. Which is great if you're on a laptop traveling for sure. Yeah, I would much, much rather have to work on headphones plugged into a Dragonfly DAC than to be in a mobile situation plugged directly into the headphone out. Yeah, and those are about, what is it, about 100 bucks, 200 bucks? They start at $100. There'll be links to that. Probably just do like Amazon or 
Sweetwater links in our show notes on our show notes page for all the gear we mentioned today. Yeah. So the next kind of item here that we're going to mention, I think for the first time maybe in the podcast is this company Sonarworks. I've experimented with Sonarworks. I have not adopted them into my workflow yet, but I'm flirting with it. I've heard a lot of good things. I've never tried it myself, but I've heard good things. And I think I love the idea of it, similar to that Slate mic emulation thing that I talked about earlier. I have not personally used it, but I love it because it does more than one thing. And it basically is a bunch of gear combined into one, which is the perfect studio owner's dream, home studio owner's dream. So what the Sonarworks software does, the type of software we're talking about, their headphone emulation dealio here is you plug in a certain type of headphones, you tell the software what type of headphones you're using, and it levels out the frequency response. So I have a set of Grados that I really, really like, but they're very difficult to use for any sort of reference work, at least for me. I haven't really learned them well. I downloaded the Sonarworks demo, told them I was using the Grado ADEs, and was like, oh, wow, oh my gosh, like that actually sounds pretty good. That's pretty flat. Wasn't the greatest thing, but it wasn't terrible. And for most headphones that I've used, my initial reaction is, this is awful. I could never work with this. And it was one of the first times these headphones are under a hundred bucks where I listened to an under hundred dollar pair of headphones and was like, oh, I, if I had to, could work with these. So this is like, I think if uh, you're just getting started, you have a cheap pair of headphones, you're trying to get it as best listening environment as possible without spending any money or spending minimal money, go check out Sonarworks and see what you can do with that. Yeah. The software is called Sonarworks Reference 4. Very interesting stuff. I'm excited to see kind of what they do as they develop and come out with new products and new services. All right. Next on our list is uh, portable sound booth dealios is what you have written on this list. <laughs> yeah. This is another Chris bullet point here. What do you mean by portable sound booth here, Chris? Portable sound booth. They're these weird, the one that's really popular right now, I don't even know what it's called. It looks like a globe and you stick it on top of your microphone. And supposedly what it does is it's like a portable sound booth. You sing into the microphone and it keeps the microphone from picking up background noise or reflections. So the little like wrap around that just wraps around the mic? Well, there's that. Any sort of portable sound booth is at least worth exploring. In my opinion, it's a lot better to build one. Go down to some sort of hardware store that stocks Owens Corning. 707? 703 703. and 705. It's compressed fiberglass. Get one of those, make a frame for it, cover it in fabric. Maybe make a little like triangle in the corner type thing and put your mic in there. I think that's going to sound a lot better. But any sort of portable sound booth is at least worth exploring. Yeah, especially if you're doing remote recording and you need something that goes on the road with you. You know, I could see how this is something that's worth mentioning. Definitely. These are interesting because if suddenly you can be like, hey, I'm going to show up and record a record in your family room and the only gear I'm going to bring will fit in the trunk of my Honda Civic. That's interesting to suddenly have like, oh, that's usable. I would much prefer to use one of those things than to not have anything, but I'd probably use a bunch of blankets first and set up sort of a sound booth. Honestly, that's how I got started. I did it in my parents' laundry room and I just had blankets and towels everywhere to just stop the early reflections. Or a good kind of MacGyver tip here. Some people do it in a closet. If you've got a closet that's just got clothes hanging on hangers and lots and lots and lots, put the mic right up against that. And that's a really effective way. It's very, very dead in most people's closets if they have a lot of clothes. Let's talk about the next thing on our list here, Chris. Things that let you work in weird places. Again, we're not all in perfectly acoustical environments. Let's talk about a specific type of microphone and then a couple suggestions within those microphones that allow you to work in odd places. What type of microphone do we need to talk about here, Chris? Large diaphragm dynamic microphone. Not condensers. Not condensers. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. Ah. Ah. Yeah. So 
condensers, I know immediately you guys are thinking, what? Don't use a condenser microphone. That's heresy. So here's the thing. If you're in an acoustically perfect environment, a large diaphragm condenser, like a U87 or a 414, whatever, fantastic. They're wonderful. If you are not in an acoustically perfect environment or there's a lot of background noise, they're rough. Mm -hmm. And if you're working with an artist who doesn't have great mic technique that gets too close to said microphone, really rough. A large diaphragm dynamic mic like Brian's Shure SM7B or my Electro Voice RE20, you can kiss it while you're singing and it still sounds good. And it doesn't pick up anything in the background because you're so freaking close it's to true. it. It's true. It's true. So I'm literally kissing my mic right now. Me too. I'm actually kissing my mic while talking into it and it's not awful. If I had a condenser mic right now, it would be garbage. So the big idea there is if you have background noise issues and that's like you're completely freaking out because you're nervous that the dog barking next door or the neighbor mowing the lawn is going to get into the final mix because you got that magic vocal take, but there's background noise, a large diaphragm dynamic mic is a great way to go. If you don't believe me, Google Michael Jackson Thriller SM7B and then shut up. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's what Michael Jackson used on Thriller, greatest selling record of all time. Let's move on. All right. So the last little section here of uh, gear we like is things that make work more comfortable. Because if you're going to be in the studio eight hours a day, sometimes longer, you need to be comfortable. And comfort is worth the money sometimes. Sometimes it's not. So let's start talking about this thing. First on our list of things that make work more comfortable. Chris, you added this. It's called a standing desk. You've talked about this recently. Uh, I think I saw some conversation in our Facebook community about someone bringing up the standing desk. Let's talk about that for a second. How is this more comfortable or what do you mean by adding comfort to your work? Well, for me, when I sit, I have terrible posture. I just like curl into a ball in my chair and I sit that way all day and then my back gets sore and my shoulder gets sore. For whatever reason, this is just me. I'm not saying, hey, let's all switch to the standing desk. But I recently switched to a standing desk and it has been fantastic. I am so much more energetic and in such a better mood at the end of the day. And I'm losing weight because I stand all day. Do you have a pad you stand on as well? I have the pad. I don't often use the pad. It just, if my feet are sore, there's like a little foamy pad that I stand on sometimes. I'm not using it right now. I've seen a pad that it has little bumps on it so that when you're standing, you can adjust your feet to different angles. Yeah. And that's supposed to keep it so that you can stand for longer. So you're not using the same muscles the entire day. I've seen that. I haven't tried it, but I think our take home from this is that you should experiment with a standing desk. If you are having morale issues in the studio, try a standing desk. And this goes back to the headphones thing. If you're mixing on headphones, a standing desk is a really, really, really easy thing to try because it doesn't mess up the acoustics in your studio. For me, I had to reorganize everything and retune my room when I switched to a standing desk. It was terrifying, but I'm very, very glad I did it. Yeah. Just to kind of add to that, there are like adjustable monitor stands. There are things you can put your computer monitor on as well to raise it up so that you can try it out without fully committing. If that makes it a little easier for you, a little less scary. All right. Next on our list of things that make work more comfortable is another Chris specific thing. You can tell which ones are Chris and which ones are me because I always call them out <laughs> for it because yours are all like odd and specific, but then you, like, weird. you yeah. make a good case for it. iMac with a 5K screen. First of all, that's very prejudiced against non-Mac users. Deal with it. But second of all, why did you put this on here? Well, every time Apple comes out with something, my initial reaction is that's stupid. Who needs that? And then about two years later, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing I've ever used in my life. 
So I, for the longest time, was I had a Mac Pro. It was the big tower. And then for a couple of years, I was mastering on a Mac Mini, actually. And that was great. And the Mac Mini just wasn't really pulling its weight. And I decided to get an iMac. The cheapest, most powerful bang for your buck at the Mac store is an iMac. And the cheapest iMac you can get that's 27 inches comes with a 5K screen. So let me give you some context there. HD on a television is 1080. A 5K is five times the resolution. So the 5K screen, you can make your plugins itty bitty and have so much real estate. And it is so easy to look at because the pixels are smaller than a human hair that it just, it makes it really comfortable. The iMac screen has been a bonkers workflow improvement for me that makes work so much easier and my eyes so much less tired at the end of the day because the resolution is absolutely insane. And it's like 1300 bucks for a low-end iMac that's 27 inches. Crazy good deal. There is non-iMac equivalents for 5K screens for PC users. That cost about as much as an iMac. Sometimes. I don't know. I have one that I use for gaming that is really affordable. So moving on. Moving on. Last thing on the list of things that make us more comfortable as far as gear, thing that we think are worth putting some money into are nice chairs, comfortable chairs, ergonomic chairs. Unless you're Chris and you use a standing desk, then it doesn't really matter. But we talked about this on a podcast not too long ago. We were, we were talking about if we're going to sit in an office or a computer or in our studio all day for eight hours a day, and we're sitting in a $200 Walmart chair, that's pretty stupid in my opinion, especially if you're doing this for a living and you make some money. So Chris, what sort of chairs have you looked into or have you given up, you sworn off the chair for all time? Well, I have sworn off the chair for all time, but in my experience, I'm going to be a little more vulnerable with you guys and I would typically be the chairs that I've liked are the mesh ones. That's so vulnerable, man. You just exposed your entire soul to us, Chris. Well, I'm going to tell you why I like the mesh ones. Okay. I like the mesh ones. Oh, I know why you're about to know what you're about to say. Because of my farts. <laughs> <laughs> with a mesh chair, your farts just pass right through them and they don't build up in the chair. If you have a chair with a big, thick pad and you have your butt on it eight hours a day, five days a week, terrible things happen. Good to know. So I prefer a chair with a mesh bottom, but I don't use a chair anymore. So there's that. There's that. I will go ahead and in full transparency say that since that episode where we talked about splurging $1,000 on a chair, I did try to purchase for my studio an ergonomic chair from Amazon for $250 because I was trying to be cheap and I wanted to see how it would work out. It looked all cool and modern, like all the expensive $1,000 ones. It's awful. I hate it. <laughs> it was a waste of money and it's worse than my 10-year-old Walmart $99 chair. So I'm going to go back. I want to return that one. My apologies for being cheap. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to get a nice ergonomic chair. I have not done it yet though, just to keep you guys up to date. That being said, if you work for a company that sells ergonomic chairs, specifically one that's compatible with the standing desk. Sponsor us, send us one, and we'll review it for you on the podcast. There you go. For sure. Yeah. We will always accept free stuff to review. And if we think it sucks, we probably won't even mention it. So Yeah, you can, no you can buy you, us with your free chairs. <laughs> joking. Let me underscore there. If it's headphones that you sell and you want to send them to me, please do. This is what you do when you have no sponsors. You just try to whore yourself out for free gear. Yeah. All right. I don't know that we'll ever have sponsors, but man, if you got nice, fancy headphones, looking at you, Sennheiser, looking at you, Grados, send them to me. I'll talk about them. As we sort of bring this to a close, let me just say this. The gear we like, all the gear that we like is a force multiplier. It's something that affects you either all day or that it makes you more effective all day. 
That's gear worth investing in. It should make you better all the time, not a small percentage of the time. So one thing I want to mention and why I like this episode so much is because the entire episode, we really didn't mention specific gear very often. And that's because in most cases, the specifics don't matter. Yeah. The difference between an RE20 and a SM7B is based on your taste. We can't be the ones to tell you which one to choose between those two. If you're choosing between different interfaces at the same price point or different mics at the same price point or different speakers at the same price point, we're not going to give you specifics on that because it's up to you. You have to be an adult and choose the one that you think works for you. But at the end of the day, we're big picture here. We're talking about from a studio perspective, from a business perspective, what gear we like. Yeah. And the big thing here is mindset. Does the gear, does the thing that you're purchasing create a multiplier in your work? And here's the thing we will promise you guys. We'll never get a sponsorship on the show from like, I don't know, a preamp manufacturer who makes a preamp that sounds pretty good. We're never going to pitch you guys on, you should get this preamp because it sounds good. Speak for yourself. I'm, I'm willing to sell out, man. I'm willing to sell out <laughs> this audience. I want the money. No, I'm just joking. I 100% agree, man. Like we're 53 episodes into this podcast. We've never had a show sponsor. I don't really see that changing. But if we ever got sponsors at Sheer Shit, wouldn't be a run-of-the-mill hardware company that's doing nothing special. Or a microphone manufacturer. Hey, this is a, you know, it just doesn't resonate. Like It would have to be something where it's, this will make it easier for you to work. Yep. All right. So I think just to wrap this up, I think it's worth talking about gear we don't like, because if you have a recording studio, there is a lot of traps you can fall into when it comes to gear. There are a lot of bad rabbit holes you do not want to go down. And I think it's worth mentioning a few things here. So first on our list of gear that we don't like is not a specific piece of gear. Again, we're talking big picture. I have a more broad thing here, and that is this. Any gear that has a cheaper plug-in alternative with comparative quality. Go back to episode number 45, where we talk about the 80-20 principle. When it comes to the 80-20 principle of gear, the software equivalent and the hardware equivalent nowadays, that gap is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Every year. Yeah, yeah every year. And it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to get plugins versions of your favorite compressor or your favorite EQ. And so any gear that has a plugin alternative that is 10 times cheaper in most cases, a lot of cases, I just can't support buying the real thing unless you are just completely aware that there's a difference between a gear collection hobby and a home studio business. If you want to be a gear collector, that's a great hobby to be a part of. The gear can even retain value pretty well. So you're not necessarily wasting money sometimes, not all the time, but you're storing money in a very illiquid asset. Meaning if you need money quick, you can't access that without selling it probably at a discount. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. I think that what you said is really interesting about how every year the plugins are getting better and better and better. And you look down the road 10 years from now, plugins are going to be nuts. They're going to be nuts. And already there are all types of plugins that do things that aren't possible in the analog realm. Just as I got started, man, digital guitar amps were a joke yeah. <laughs> when I started in 2009. Nowadays, when you take into account things like Kemper, who are digitally profiling a analog sound, it's indistinguishable in a mix to me. You can maybe hear tiny little subtle differences, but you're getting into tiny nuances. Now it's the conversation of, can you or can you hear that minor difference in the mix versus, oh, digital tones are garbage. It's changed so much in the last eight, nine years. Since Amplitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't wait to see the next nine, 10 years in the digital plugin world. Yeah. And the conversation should not be about which sounds better. The conversation should be about opportunity cost. If it was like, well... We saved three days in tracking that we were able to dedicate to writing. 
because we did X, Y, and Z that was more efficient, if it sounds 99.9% as good and you were able to invest more time or more money into something that actually made the record materially better, that, that's an easy conversation to have. Furthermore, if you took the difference between that $200 plugin and that $2,000 compressor and invested that $1,800 difference into your education on learning how to use that compressor more effectively or learning how to use that EQ more effectively, that's going to be a massive difference in sound, not just the subtle differences between the plugin and the gear. And so that's just something I want everyone to take away from this episode is it's more about the user, not the gear in these days, especially when it comes to plugins yeah. versus hardware. And so put that money to better use in learning what the hell you're doing with it. All right, next on our list of gear we don't like, Chris, what is on that list? Anything you have to go into debt to buy. Ooh, so good. I mean, listen, the traditional way of just going into debt to buy gear for your studio, if you build it, they will come. That model's dead. I very much think that personal finance and home studios go hand in hand nowadays. If you are running a home studio, it's most likely going to be a sole proprietorship in America, which means you are no different from your business in the government's eyes. Even if you're an LLC or an S corp, doesn't matter what business entity you are. I'm getting down into weird tax world here. Sorry for my foreign listeners. No matter what business entity you are, it is still you at the end of the day. You are your business in the audio world. You are your business and your personal finances directly impact your studio and vice versa. Your studio's finances directly impact your personal finances. So if you're putting your personal finances in jeopardy of your family and your future and your future ability to buy a home or to get a car or whatever, to finance gear, to go into debt, to buy gear, that is not a good place to be. And I cannot support any gear you have to go into debt to buy. Yeah. Well, that's a nice, easy way to look at things. If you can't buy it with cash, don't buy it. I think that there are maybe five situations for two different people on earth where it will make sense to be like, oh, well, I mean, I have a really awesome shot at this artist. So I'm going to buy this gear because I think it'll help me land them. Maybe. I don't, but I don't know. I, I don't almost. Know. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like one out of a couple thousand where that's going to be the case. And here's the thing, even if that is the case, it's a risk. I'm going to go into debt hoping that by going into debt, I will have an opportunity to earn more money. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's dangerous. All right. Uh, next on our list of gear we don't like is any gear that slows you down. Chris, what do you mean by this? Well, any gear that slows you down. So like my favorite piece of gear that I own, I'm a guitar player at heart. And my favorite piece of gear is a 1966 Fender Princeton reverb amplifier that I bought when I was in college. So specific. It's so good. It's one of the most classic amps of all time, but you have to like angle it just right in your studio so it doesn't hum. And you have to make sure like everybody's happy and the humidity is at a certain level or there's like weird background noise. It's picky. And so it takes you forever to use. And in a situation like that, if you're trying to produce a record using an amp like that, if it slows you down, Maybe there's a magic that it brings to the table that makes the record, or maybe you wasted your time making something perfect when you could have invested that time somewhere else that would have made the record better. Yeah, because there's likely some other digital alternative you can use that gets you similar results in half the time because you're not fidgeting around with the humidity of the room. <laughs> Case in point, you can get a plug-in that's exactly that amplifier for your UAD. All right, last in our list of gear we don't like, and then we're going to wrap this episode up, is Gear that has an immediate drop in value. Now, this isn't something we always hate. Certain gear you buy, if you get it new, it's going to drop massively in value. But in most cases, 
the gear I like to buy, if it's going to have a massive drop in value, I want to buy it used. It's not going to be under warranty, but if you were to look big picture at the risk you take by taking a piece of gear that's not under warranty, what it costs to get it repaired if it were to break, it still is completely way, way better financially than buying a brand new piece of gear that drops in 50% in value the day you take it home. And similar to Dave Ramsey's view on buying a new car, uh, that's kind of how I have my personal view on buying gear that drops in value the second you drive it off the lot, you know, so to speak, is I just don't like it. And I buy so much of my gear used. Or as a demo, I'm a big fan of Sweetwater when I'm buying gear and they have open box specials and demos and, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, I mentioned before my Crane Song, I have a set. Love this thing. It was the floor model. It was the demo that, uh, that Sweetwater had and I got a huge discount because it was open box. A lot of times though, you can get used gear off Craigslist that's going to see a lot less use than a floor model because it's not going to be powered on 12 hours a day. It's not going to be used by hundreds of people coming through a store. So just depends on, you got to be careful about that stuff sometimes, but anything's better than brand new, I still think. So um, stuff to keep in mind. So let's wrap this episode up. Really, if you were to sum up this whole episode into kind of one little neat box, I think a lot of the things we talk about today is basically being an adult in your purchases. Being a, being a damn adult in your purchases because most people that I know, they want to buy something that they are not quite ready. They don't deserve, for lack of a better phrase. They don't deserve it yet. They haven't earned it from their audio skills yet. They just want it. There's no sense of delayed gratification in a lot of people that make improper gear purchases. So I think really summing it up is it's worth the wait in most cases just work on your audio skills because your gear is not going to save your business. I'm sorry. I've never seen a studio go out of business because of a lack of gear. It's usually because of two things. They run out of money or they just couldn't make money at all because they're terrible at what they do, which is just another way of saying you ran out of money. Or number three, no one knew they existed. Ooh, another way of putting it. Yep. Yep. Nobody was knocking on the door. The phone wasn't ringing because they're sitting there tweaking knobs expecting that, hey, I bought all this gear. I'm really good at it. The universe owes me to send customers my way. Or they're doing what Chris Graham was doing back in the day, which is sitting on the sofa while he's with trying to spend quality time, air quotes there, with his wife. Meanwhile, he's on his phone or computer looking up schematics for some sort of- For that amp. Crazy amp. Because <laughs> it needed yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good use of your time or money or effort. We're just trying to kind of hopefully change some people's mindsets when they approach the gear. And this is kind of a long episode. I understand that, but this is a big topic that we couldn't really condense down, but I'm hoping people kind of understand what our view on gear is. This is why we have the gear slot alert. This is why we don't talk about gear on the podcast because there's so much that goes into this. At the end of the day, gear is not necessarily what sets you apart from your competitors. It's your skill. It's your skill. And if you try to focus on gears being your determining factor, your differentiating factor that positions you as the bigger and better studio, that is a very expensive way to try to differentiate yourself. And I do not like that method. Instead, focus on your skills, your abilities, your relationships, your positioning, your differentiation and other avenues. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Gear, it's one of the worst ways in my opinion. Yep, totally agree. So that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. One thing I want to mention from this episode is that I hope we didn't sound too preachy. Uh, I know that we can be very preachy about gear, but if this episode offended you, I encourage you to check yourself. This should be a gut check for you because this should not offend you. If anything, you should be screaming hell yeah to this episode because this sort of mental approach towards gear is, in my opinion... In the opinion of my co-host, this is a healthy approach to gear. This is a healthy attitude towards gear. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, 
there's nothing inherently wrong with gear at all. What's wrong with it is the attitude behind the gear purchase. And hopefully this episode helps shed some light on why we are so anti-gear on our podcast. If you have anything you want to add to the discussion, we have a Facebook conversation going in our Facebook community right now. You can go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 53, and there will be a link to the Facebook discussion where you can comment on it. Chris and I are tagged in it. We will see the comment from you and we will respond to it or try to respond to it. Or at the very least, we will see it. Fun fact, today is November 13th or at least it should be. That's when this episode is scheduled to go live. And my birthday is in three days, November 16th. So wish me a happy birthday on Instagram at Brian Hood. That's B-R-I-A-N-H-0-0-D or on Facebook. So next week's episode is one of those that I am looking forward to just from the title alone. Next week's episode is called What Drug Dealers Can Teach Recording Studios. That episode will be live next Tuesday at 6 a.m. And that's all I'm going to say about that episode. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and happy hustling. Whoa.